All right, well, brothers and sisters, today we conclude our study of the book of James. And after my vacation time, when I, the next time I'm preaching, uh, we will begin, we will commence our study of the prophet Micah. So I encourage you to uh, read that book. It's not overly long but it'll help you gain some familiarity with it. But today we're going to finish up James. And he sort of comes full circle. He, he began his book by saying that if any one of us lacks wisdom, we, need, we should ask God. Well, to ask God is to pray. And he closes with the topic of prayer. So together, brothers and sisters, let us read from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20 in Hear what the Lord has for us in these words. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, we thank you for the book of James that your servant wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that therefore has been preserved through the ages for us. And we pray that it will be preserved for all your people to come until you come. We ask, O oh God, that this morning you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would indeed set aside the distractions of our hearts and focus on your word, that we might find life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are at the last sermon that we're going to preach from James, at least for a while. There's a number of passages in this book, a number of verses, a number of thoughts in this book that truly 
do merit really in-depth focus. And so we, what we've sought to do here is to give an exposition of, of the book in its totality, not, not at 30,000 foot level, but at the same time not under a microscope because we wanted to not miss the forest for the trees. But at the end of the day, as we approach the end of this book, it's helpful to look back to recall what it is that James has been calling us to do. And I think that in so doing, it'll help orient us for what he's calling for us to do here. In this book, he's essentially been calling us to live out our faith. He's been calling us to do a gut check, so to speak. Sure, sure, you say you believe. Here's how you know if the thing you're calling belief is real. Talk is cheap. People can say all kinds of things. It's not sayers who are to be taken seriously. It is doers who are to be taken seriously. This is what James is saying. James is saying, don't tell me you believe. Show me you believe. And so he's given us all sorts of characteristics by which we can identify true faith. Godly behavior. Humility, patience, endurance, self-control, particularly over our tongues, restraint. These, brothers and sisters, are the characteristics that we should demonstrate and more and more. It is insufficient to go through life living like a heathen and yet coming to church and confessing the Apostles' Creed with your lips, spouting the answers to the shorter catechism, a robot can do that. James wants you to remember that the sort of thing that the Bible calls faith, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This thing that is called faith is a manly thing. Not so concerned with words, but very concerned with action. So talk less, do more. That, that sentiment is echoed by Paul throughout his epistles. Again, we are not saved by works. But faith that is real does indeed work. He is not telling you so much, you better do this or else. What he's doing is giving you a barometric by which you can more accurately see yourself or see your alleged faith reflected back to you in the mirror. He is not saying, go out and you better start looking and acting like a Christian or else. That's the religion of the Pharisees. No, what he's talking about is the organic fruit that comes from something that is alive. The apple tree doesn't have to conjure up apples. It just makes apples. Okay? 
right about the time that I, I hit puberty earlier than a lot of guys, but right about the time I was 12 years old, I didn't have to think and start pushing real hard to make hair start coming out of my face. It just came. So too is it with the fruit of the Spirit. Since faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit never leaves you, your faith is therefore a living thing. And it grows, and it develops. And so James has demonstrated throughout his book that he understands and that we need to understand that our faith is going to grow and we're going to stumble and it's going to be a process of development. But these are the traits that describe true saving faith. And so he's been talking to people about the fruit that their faith should be producing, especially as they're going through the trials and troubles of life. And earlier in this chapter, I mean, he begins chapter 5 with, with a call out to those who have been oppressing the people, the rich, the cultural haves who are seeking to live their best life now at any means possible. They're willing to take, they're willing to cheat, they're willing to do whatever to make sure that they get theirs now. They're willing to make sure the laws are written in their favor so that they keep all the social and cultural and economic advantages, okay? This is antithetical to the Christian life. The Christian life calls for you not to seek your best life now. Rather, we are to live principally for the world to come. We are to live principally in view of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. He reminds us, the judge is at the door. So we live in light of the fact that he is coming and he will render unto each person their due. And so, it is with this in mind that our Faith is to be lived out amidst trials and tribulations and sufferings with, 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 with an expectation and hope in the coming of our Lord and that therefore we control ourselves and we exercise self-discipline and we, and we have patience and we have long-suffering. How else ought we to act? based upon an expectation of the Lord's return. We are to, as he says here, pray. Now this here, when in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, we see here that prayer is the lifeblood of our faith. He provides Situations and circumstances along the spectrum. Are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? Pray. Praise. Prayer is the lifeblood 
of the church. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. And so, what we see here, though, is not just a general summons to pray, to have a prayerful attitude. He's, he's not just here telling you to have a private devotional time with Jesus each morning. He here is underscoring the life and role of prayer in the congregation. He sees Christians as part of a body. This entire book has kept reiterating and underscoring the connections we have to one another in the life of our local assembly. Even here, amongst yourselves, pray for one another. If one of you sees anyone among you wandering off. Okay, he's talking life in the body. And the role and place of caring and praying in the life of the body. If prayer is the lifeblood of our faith, then it ought to be the lifeblood that binds us together. Kind of like we're cells and the blood that flows between us keeps us all moving in the same way, organized, accomplishing the assigned purpose for which God has us. Life in the body is the broader theme of this passage. What is your attitude and expectation of life in the body? Is your attitude that Church is just a place to come and be affirmed. Is your attitude that this is just a place to come to be fed, but my personal life is hemmed off? Or is this the hub of your social life? What is it for you? But here's what I do know. The standard that God has for us here is that the local assembly is a place of transparency, is to be a place of transparency, a place of intimacy, and a place of accountability. You see the accountability part clear as day in the last two verses of this passage. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, okay, this is not talking about church discipline. This is not talking about the elders going and opening up the BCO and going through this tedious process. No, this is something much, much more organic. It is... Brother and sister, who are friends, seeing that someone in their midst has gone off the deep end, so to speak, has started wandering away, and they care enough to lovingly confront. The Bible speaks against meddling. And so what we need to understand is, Someone's business isn't everybody's business. 
But you have a web of relationships. You're in a web of relationships, right? And brother, sister, the role of a friend is not just to tell you how great your Instagram photos are. You're not a friend unless you're willing to say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I miss the way you were. It's dangerous doing verses 19 and 20. It, it sounds romantic and simple, but, but, but in those verses is getting yelled at. If you're my friend, you'll be on my side. If you're my friend, you'll support me. It's being called names. It's being, and, and, and it's having the love to sit there and take it. Build those kind of relationships in the church because we need them for accountability. Because we are all of us, each and every one of us, prone to wandering. You know how it says here, wanders? And there's a Bible verse about we all like sheep have wandered off. We are prone to wandering. And without the accountability of someone to pull us back or at least stop us to think, we may be too far gone. And so engage in the loving work of the body of accountability. But this requires relationships. Okay? But we also see in this text the intimacy of prayer. How we are to bring it before the body. We are to pray for ourselves. We are to in invoke the elders where necessary, where I'm not just out there on an island holding my sorrows to myself. I don't want to get people worked up. Believe you me, we want to get worked up. You, you, you have your hearts in, 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 in knots and your stomach is all bound up and just, you're just anxious and, and I don't want anyone to worry. Let us know. Believe it or not, there's almost a therapeutic value in letting someone else know. And so we see in this intimacy part, we see three spheres of prayer here. First in verse 13, there's the call to the individual to pray, to sing praise when things are going well. So prayer takes the form of spoken words. It takes the form of sung words. You can sing your songs as prayer. Second, there's the official aspect of prayer. And, and I want to come back to 14 and 15 because 14 and 15 are what hog all the limelight in our, in our eyes. So we're going to come back to that, okay? Because what I think is more relevant to the majority of us is the fact that we're called as a congregation to pray. In verse 16a, that's the third sphere, is the congregational that we are to pray for one another. So we're praying individually. We're going to get back to the elders being involved. But then as a congregation, we pray for one another. And I promise we're going to get back to the second. 
But then we see the obligation that we have to confess our sins. And this is where we have the transparency. What, they are, what James is not telling us to do is have open mic time. Like when I went to summer camp as a kid, they would have this bonfire and they wanted us to come up there and just like tell everybody what I did or what we did or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. What it does mean is, especially if you have wronged someone, confess it to that person. But there's also, you've heard the phrase, confession is good for the soul. You need some transparent, some intimate relationship that you can be transparent with. That you can say, man, I'm putting on a brave face, but life really stinks. I, I'm, I'm scared, I'm hurting, whatever it is. Or, or you know, I'm, I, I cheated on my taxes and I, and, I, and, I, and I feel guilty. I need to make it right and I don't know how. You need someone that you can be transparent with. Because keeping stuff bottled inside, even, even David says he tried to keep his sin undisclosed and, and kept up, and it was like rot in his bones. And so he confessed it. He confessed it to the Lord. But there's great value in bringing our troubles to someone we can trust. So once again, build the relationships. We need transparency and not just smiling faces all the time. So now, back to the second thing, the second sphere of prayer from, it talks about, if you're sick, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. What, what is he talking about? Some have said, oh, th th this is just something for the apostolic age. Uh, uh, others think they're talking about a sacrament. The Catholics have the sacrament of extreme unction, which is this, the anointing of the sick. Uh, others think that, uh, well, if you're still sick, it's just a sign that you don't have enough faith. What's going on here? Okay, well, first of all, this occurs within the context of a section on prayer. And he's giving the three spheres of prayer. You need to pray for yourself. You need to invoke the shepherds of the church. And you need to have prayer amongst the body of the church. And so the elders of the church would be the official sphere. Because elders are the officers of Christ appointed to govern and guard the church. We're told in 1 Peter 5, 2, that elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And remember that the word shepherd is simply pastor. If you wonder what pastor means, it means the shepherd. Okay? So, pastor the flock of God that is among you, elders, shepherd 
the flock of God that is among you. So he's appointed elders to shepherd and guard and pastor the flock. And one of the ways is to be his emissary when people are sick. And I'm using the air quotes here because a lot of trouble has been brought simply by not understanding the word that is used here. Is anyone among you sick? The Greek word simply means weak. Not in a solid state, in a compromised condition. It is the word that is used for physical illness. But most of the time, it refers to someone who's in a less than mature state. It's the word in, for example, when Paul says, I became weak among you to help you become strong. It's the word to use for a weaker brother who doesn't eat meat. It refers to someone who has a troubled conscience. It refers to someone whose faith is hanging by a thread. And oh sure, it refers to someone who is physically ill. It's used in a lot of ways. So quite frankly, it's, it's a little premature for our English translation to just say sick. Because for us, that means a physical thing. In fact, even down here uh, in, in verse, in, in verse uh, 16, uh, confess your sins that you, may, that you may be healed. Oh, that's physical. Really? By his stripes we are healed. All healed means is to be made whole. So what is this passage talking about? Well, it is not a promise that everybody is going to be healed all the time. It's amazing how often I hear that from a certain sector of the body. Remember, Hebrews 9.27 tells you something. It is appointed unto man once to die. You are going to die. For most of us, unless you're killed in a car crash or, or you're killed by a, by a criminal or something, for most of us, that death is going to involve being sick. So it's interesting how so many people would, would try to make James 5 functionally act as if every time you're sick, this is God's solemn promise that he's going to heal you if you just pray. As if that could somehow go on indefinitely and thereby circumvent his decree that you are going to die. No. Remember, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul can't heal himself. That's a strange thing if all he had to do was, you know, have some oil drop on his head. It's, it's interesting that he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that he should use wine as a medicinal, for a medicinal purpose for a chronic 
digestive issue if, if really all he needed to do was just have some, have some elders come pray on him. Paul advocates the use of medicine. And then more astonishingly, perhaps, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's writing, he's reporting on a trip he was making, and he actually had to leave someone behind because they were sick. That's impossible. All he had to do was pray for him. Okay, hear me now. It is spiritual abuse to say that this passage is saying that all you need to do is have some elders come and pray for you with oil and you will get better. That is not what it's saying. So what is he saying? The elders in their official role as Christ's officers of his body they have a specially appointed role to represent Christ and his kingdom and his gospel and his promises to his people. And they are to be involved in the care of the people. And so the first thing is that they're called sick, or as the word really is in its broadest term, weak. He's just a few verses before talked about people who are getting beat up. Some are being killed. They are assailed on every side. And sure, some of them are physically sick. But what this is talking about, and this word is so much broader, is all of the things that can get you in a weakened, less than 100% state and you're down in the dumps, and you are feeling just, ugh. And Christ wants you to know that you are his. And so when you are weak, whether it's from physical infirmity, or you're just chronically just getting beat up by the world, and assailed, and knocked from all sides, Get the elders together. It's their job. And they are to come and pray with you. And they are to anoint you with oil. Now, the anointing with oil is not a sacrament, but it happens a lot. And to beat around the bush, to anoint something with oil is to consecrate it. To show that it has been set apart for God's purposes. And so, when someone in their weakness, and if, if you have the spiritual hardness to go through chronic depression, chronic infirmity, and not do a little self-reflection, most people, when you're sick, you're thinking about your mortality, your all sorts of stuff. And in that moment of weakness, you say, I am the Lord's. And I am dedicated and consecrated to his good purposes. He is sovereign. I am not. I am to be used and disposed of at his good pleasure. This is what it means to be anointed with oil. That you are recognizing that your very life is the Lord's. And in your moment of weakness, you're saying this. It's one thing to say it when you're strong, when you're 18. I'm the Lord's army. It's another thing when you're weak 
and you've just lost a loved one and you've got cancer and, 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 and you have congestive heart failure and life is really... I am the Lord's. And you consecrate yourself and the elders consecrate you as a reminder that you are his. And when the elders do this, and they pray with you, if there's sin involved, because the Bible does say that God sometimes disciplines his children with, with difficulty and hardship, but not every time is it sin. Just because you're sick or har- under hardship does not mean there's sin. But if there is, your prayer of faith of casting yourself before, your sin is forgiven. And the elders are the, are, are the communicators of, and the reminders of that grace. So this is what it looks like in the body, where we are to be praying for one another, encouraging one another. And when we go through these hard seasons and we're battered and beaten and we're just weak and we're barely hanging on, get the elders involved and, and we'll pray. We will come and remind you of God's Gospel promises to you and his presence with you and that his blessing is upon you and we will anoint you with oil and remind you that you are consecrated to him as you confess it yourself. And so we have this intimacy. We are to have this intimacy in our body and we're to have this accountability and this transparency. Heaven forbid that we should be a plastic people in a fake church where we come in here with smiles and we leave with smiles and everything is, I'm great, I'm great. If, if everything is great for you all the time, then man, hang out with me more because I need it. Or maybe don't hang out with me because some of my problems will run off on you. And I, I hope you know what I'm saying. Let's be real. And this is what he's calling us for. So real life, live together, this is how we hold on. And this is how we then march through life together. Sometimes limping, sometimes dancing. But we march together to glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the book of James. Let us pray.